Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the U.S. Department of Energy? How is it modernizing its IT systems and infrastructure? And what are the challenges and opportunities that Advanced Wireless present for the Department of Energy? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Ann Duncan. Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Energy. Anne, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be back, Michael. Thank you. So, Anne, before we delve into specific initiatives, would you give us a brief overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Department of Energy? Sure, I'd love to do that. Uh, It was amazing for me over the last year and almost a half now to learn about that mission. Um, So, you know, we are responsible for everything from on one end of the spectrum, uh, securing the nuclear weapons stockpile for the country, ensuring nuclear nonproliferation or contributing to nuclear nonproliferation, and uh, providing propulsion for nuclear submarines. Uh, so on one end of the mission, it, sort of in the middle, I sort of, I think of it is the energy sector in the United States. So we sell bulk power. So we, we have four uh, power marketing administrations across the country. They sell power primarily generated from the from the great dam network um, in this country, but some other sources as well. And so those those uh, those PMAs uh, market the power that is generated by um, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, Department of Interior, number of organizations that run those dams, run those power facilities. We market that power to uh, to the folks who actually sell power to the public and we run uh, the grid uh, through much of the country as part of that process. So uh, that we also manage uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which has been in the news of late, and that's part of DOE's mission. So on the other end of the spectrum, I sort of think of it as uh, our labs. So DOE has 17 national labs spread across the country that perform research in a huge array of topics and capabilities. We actually have 97 plants, sites, and labs, there are over 27 states. In it. So it's a huge, huge enterprise doing things that you couldn't possibly imagine. Um, I'll, just to highlight one thing is that right now, uh, our high-performance computing includes the fastest computer in the world frontier at Oak Ridge National Labs. People are always getting knocked off that top step, but right now we own it, and we're proud of the first X, a scale computer in the world. And that's terrific. A great uh, setup there. And you are the uh, chief information officer at DOE at Energy. I'm wondering, how is your office organized? What what is the mission of the office? And how are you organized to support the overall mission of energy? So, yeah, Michael, our office is is organized. Our mission is to uh, provide IT service delivery, cybersecurity, uh, technology innovations, digital transformation, and enable collaboration across DOE. Uh, and that includes uh, cyber workforce development. It also includes managing spectrum for all of DOE. Uh, so we have sort of a broad array of things that we do. And um, part of what we do is service connectors, 
and uh, conveners across DOE and sometimes across the enterprise or even across the, the, including the private sector and sometimes even our international partners. So an example um, is uh, we released DOE's advanced wireless strategy, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about in a little more detail. Um, it's the first strategy DOE's had and we started by cataloging what DOE does and then uh, so we would all know and could share that and then moving on to identifying gaps and develop or developing a strategy and identifying gaps across the enterprise that we can then fill. So that's an example of how we provide that sort of that that convening and stewardship role across DOE. Uh, some of the other things we do in our office is, as I mentioned, uh, we have a modernization role. Uh, so we we ensure that modernization happens in DOE across uh, the enterprise in a appropriate manner. So for example, uh, working in our office to develop a um, low code platform that can be shared across DOE with a rapid ATO process. So this is nothing new. We've been talking about doing this uh, since the last time I was in the in, in the federal government. But it's just this, this important thing to have the ability to very quickly deploy applications across the enterprise. And so that's a big part of, of what we're doing uh, in our offices is developing the capability, number one, for us to deliver new services and capabilities fast, and number two, to provide a platform that other people across DOE can use to deliver services quickly. And obviously we do things as well as uh, that you might expect, like enterprise IT, um, commodity IT, all those things that, that are gonna keep trains running on time, we got to keep the trains running on time so that we can do the other fun things uh, like our innovation projects and things like that. So obviously I mentioned we're responsible for cybersecurity. We operate the uh, Joint Cybersecurity Coordination Center across DOE and that is where we consolidate cyber information across the enterprise, identify trends, collect metrics, send out tippers the organization and into cares of compromise and ensure that we are working in a coordinated manner to defend DOE. And I've been talking a lot recently about collective defense. Uh, there's a lot of ways collective defense shows up. And one of the ways collective defense shows up is us defending ourselves across the DOE enterprise ourselves. Uh, and then I'll just mention a couple other things. Obviously, we provide oversight for FATAR and FISMA. We also manage CUI and records and privacy across DOE. Uh, and we manage, uh, we provide oversight across DOE's entire uh, investment portfolio. As we roll up our budget for uh, FY23, we're looking at somewhere around $3.6 billion in IT spend, plus uh, another 600 million in supercomputing. So DOE's budget is looking to be around 4.2 billion that we provide oversight for, for FY23. And then finally, I'll wrap up by saying, uh, we also are, are responsible for data and geospatial information across DOE. So that's a whole lot I just told you about that we do. And uh, we have a small uh, organization, relatively speaking, that provide leadership and oversight across that entire portfolio. I'm wondering, Ann, when you give us that kind of tee up, what kind of responsibilities and duties do you have per se as the CIO at Energy? What's a day in the life of the CIO? Well, like one of the things I love about being a federal CIO is a day in the life one day is going to be totally different from a day in the life the next day. So I have the the privilege uh, of, of reporting to uh, Secretary Granholm and Deputy Secretary Turk and really have their support to drive change across the enterprise, 
to make us uh, more efficient and more secure and uh, more innovative across DOE and, and to support DOE's mission uh, to modernize energy infrastructure across the country and to ensure a clean energy future, uh, to ensure Justice 40, the president's initiative to ensure that 40% of the benefits of our investments go to underserved and overburdened communities and to really make the future of our country bright and positive in the energy sector. I'm particularly excited as an EV owner that we get to support rolling out EV chargers uh, across the country uh, right now as part of our uh, bill funding. So, so when you look at that, so what does that mean? What do we do to support that? What do I do to support that? So on a day-to-day you know, -day basis, obviously, um, there's a significant role around uh, IT planning, budgeting, not in the development phase of those things, but in the ensuring that we set the right priorities, that we're applying our money in the right places. And then it's my job to advocate across DOE, across uh, our, our, with our congressional colleagues at OMB uh, to ensure that people understand why we need that funding and uh, how we're going to spend that funding and that they're, that they're going to provide the money we need to do our jobs. Um, I also provide oversight across DOE, which means within the department, I lead, I lead our governance efforts. Uh, the Cyber Council, uh, which is chaired by Deputy Secretary Turk and co-chaired by myself, meet on a, on a regular basis to lead that governance effort that, that I work on with my team. So again, on an ongoing basis, I, I'm, I'm going to be having conversations where we're looking at what are people trying to do within DOE to advance uh, IT innovation, cybersecurity, other parts of our mission. And we're going to be working, I'm going to be working with my team and with parts of DOE because DOE is a very federated organization to identify the right projects to be working on. And obviously I'm not personally identifying those projects, but working with those folks to understand the projects they're proposing and uh, what we're gonna be spending on those and how we're gonna accomplish those to ensure that they're effective projects. So we have conversations about governance, about what we're accomplishing, about those projects and about the metrics coming up through the organization to see how we're doing on our performance around uh, you know, FISMA and FITARA metrics and other metrics we might develop internally across DOE. Obviously we have to deliver high quality IT services. So on a daily basis, I, I'm not engaged day to day in the oversight of that, but what I am doing is making sure that we have the tools and capabilities, the people, the, the right things in the right places so we can deliver high quality IT services to the organization. And beyond that, you know, I'm constantly out talking to people, whether it's people in DOE, whether it's uh, people in the interagency or our international partners. Uh, we're constantly having conversations about what we're trying to do, how we can partner together and, and achieve results. And the last thing I'll mention is just in, in that, as an example, I'm the one of the chairs of the innovation committee as, as a CIO council. And so that's an opportunity for me to drive DOE's mission forward, and, and but also drive forward uh, work across the interagency. So um, that's another thing that, that I spend my time on. So those are sort of the, the big buckets of things, uh, but every day is different and that's the exciting part. Yeah, and when you think of those big buckets in the portfolio which you lead, and I was wondering, what are some of the top management challenges you face in the position you're in currently? And how have you sought through the year and a half to address those challenges? Michael, the, there are, it's an interesting question. What are the top challenges? Because, you know, I could run down a laundry list of things. But I think um, 
You know, the, the number one challenge uh, we probably have right now is uh, making sure we have all the right people in the right places and enough of them. It's no secret that it's hard to hire in, in uh, technology uh, in the federal government. It's hard to retain people. It's hard to have enough positions available. And it's hard to figure out what the right balance is across your organization of who is where and who is in a federal employee role and who's in a contractor role. So figuring out uh, sort of the, the right group of people, getting all those people on board and building the team uh, is, is, a, is a big challenge. And we've had a lot of turnover in the last year and a half since I've been there of the senior leadership team, uh, you know, with people choosing to retire, people choosing to, to pursue great opportunities that they've gotten. And so we have a pretty new team. And uh, we're, in fact, we've, our, our new CISO isn't on board yet. We have a um, great member of our team acting. Uh, we have, in fact, two acting folks on the deputy CIO team. And then most of the, of the other deputy CIOs, including my principal deputy, are pretty new. So a lot of work in building that team, getting the right people in the right chairs, and getting uh, roles and responsibilities understood. Second thing, because it never goes away, uh, obviously, is, is cybersecurity. You know, just like we have to deliver great services uh, as table stakes to do anything else, we absolutely have to keep the enterprise secure. Uh, that is also fundamental. And you know, DOE has, has been both good and lucky because uh, I think there's always a little bit of luck that we've not had a major incident in a while. But uh, we will continue to be vigilant. We'll continue to work across the enterprise to ensure that, that things stay that way. And then I think, uh, you know, I talked about building the team. Uh, equally, the, there's an equal challenge of building relationships across DOE. And that's a good challenge, just like building a team is a good challenge because you get to get to, to help people grow and develop. Well, well building that uh, relationships across the enterprise is a great challenge because you get to know these folks uh, who are dedicated to DOE's mission and who are great partners. Uh, but the, uh, the challenge is it's a huge enterprise. Uh, there's a whole lot of component CIOs spread across DOE, all of whom have uh, you know, oversight of their own missions and concerns. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's a really diverse mission. So uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of challenges associated uh, with, with building those relationships, building trust across the organization, uh, and then getting stuff done. You know, I was wondering, Anne, what has surprised you most um, since taking over this role, given your background, your last stint in government, and then your time in the private sector, what, what surprised you most now? Yeah, Michael, that's, Interesting because you know EPA is where I was last is a pretty diverse place. There's a lot going on, but it turns out uh, DOE is is even more diverse. And you, you know I can list off these three major mission areas where we have nuclear, and we've got power generation and and SPRO, and then we've got labs. Uh, and that seems like well, that's a really big mission. And even within that, it's even bigger. And and there are surprises every time I go somewhere, every time I talk to someone, I find out something else we do that I didn't know about. At some level, I suppose that shouldn't have been a surprise because that was, uh, to some extent, my experience at EPA. But the breadth of the surprises at DOE are, are still sort of shocking. Uh, so, for example, I was at uh, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and they took me into a fish lab. So a wet lab in, in PNNL, in the Department of Energy, and you sort of go, well, why is there a fish lab here? doesn't seem to make any sense at all. And of course, number one, we're doing research on possibly anything you can imagine. But number two, we, we sell power generated from dams. Uh, 
fish are heavily impacted by dams. And so there's actually a lot of interest in understanding those interactions and how we can maintain the fish, fish populations in the Northwest because those fish stocks are important to our ecosystem and important uh, to the tribes and important to uh, fishermen. And there's a bunch of people who care about those fish populations. Uh, but it's not something you expect when you walk into a DOE lab to find a, a fish lab in there. So I'm continually surprised by uh, the things I see, both uh, you know in our open science labs and in our in our uh, nuclear labs, and it's just an incredible uh, breadth of work. I, I think I've, I've reached the belief that uh, anything at all that you can research, there's probably someone somewhere at a national lab who is studying that. That's terrific. You know, um, I was wondering, Anne, if you could tell us, you know, a little bit more about yourself, your career path. We talked about EPA um, and, and also, you know, during that stint between your previous federal service and now, what insights have you brought to your current role? So, yeah, the quick the quick version of, of my uh, career is uh, so I'm, I'm an engineer by education uh, and actually an industrial engineer. Uh, for folks who don't know anything about industrial, my first degree is industrial engineering. My second one is in manufacturing. Uh, for those who don't know anything about industrial engineering, it's uh, there's a lot of management science in industrial engineering, a, a lot of uh, optimization, planning, strategy kind of things. Uh, so it's a it's very applicable to to leadership, and you'll see a lot of industrial engineers uh, in in the highest parts of companies because of that. So after I uh, finished my master's degree, I went um, to work in the private sector for Hewlett Packard. Uh, left, after I left Hewlett Packard, I got my first public sector job. I was chief technology officer for uh, the Palo Alto School District. I might also back up and mention uh, at HP, I worked in a huge range of things. Um, and a few years before I left, I got reorganized from an R&D uh, role into an IT role because we were doing um, web projects in sort of the early commercialization of the internet. And so we moved that stuff over to IT. So I spent several years in IT, including uh, as uh, what would be the equivalent of the CIO for Indigo, which is a digital press company that um, HP acquired. And when I left HP, I was back in R&D, but I wound up, when I left, I went to the school district and became the CTO there, which in school district speak is a CIO. And then uh, from there, I went to the EPA. And after the EPA, the, the that gap, I spent three years as um, the CIO for Santa Clara County. And then I spent uh, a little over a year uh, at Dell. Uh, so I went back to the private sector. And then I got a phone call asking me if I'd you know, come work on the transition. And uh, they just you know sort of sucked me right back in from there. Um, so much for that cushy corporate job. You know, in terms of, of, of insights and and lessons. I mean, I think the probably the biggest insight is that uh, both the private and public sector have things to teach each other. And um, you know, I deal with people who think that uh, folks in the public sector don't know anything, that public sector CIOs don't work very hard, or public sector employees in general don't work very hard because it's hard to see progress. And there are, are people equally in the in the public sector, frankly, who think that they couldn't cut it in the private sector, that uh, people are smarter and better and leap off tall buildings in a single bound. And the reality is that uh, there are smart people in both, both sectors. Good companies and good government agencies and departments attract great people, uh, and less good companies and departments and agencies attract less good people. 
in government mission is hugely important. So uh, agencies with cool missions get a leg up on getting great people. In the private sector, there's a little bit of that mission. You know, some companies feel better for people to work at than others, but most people don't pick their private sector company about mission. They might, unless it's because that mission happens to be the kind of work they think is cool and fun. But you know, I think the most important thing, going back to where I started on this, is we have stuff to teach each other. And the folks in the private sector and the public sector are equally competent. Uh, and if you pick someone up from the private sector and put them in the public sector, they're going to struggle with the same challenges people in the public sector struggle with and vice versa. If you pick someone up from the public sector and put them in the private sector, they're going to struggle in the same way that people in the private sector are now. So uh, people may prefer, right? There may be people who say, well, I prefer to deal with the public sector bureaucracy than deal with the profit imperative. And there may be people who say the opposite, but it's, it's, you know, there's not an inherently better group of people in either place. And I think it's really important because when you reach that conclusion, then you reach the conclusion, number one, that people should be moving between those two places and learning. And number two, that there is in fact stuff to learn from each other if you stop and listen. I've given our colleagues uh, at some of the um, innovation teams across the government uh, some grief over the years about the fact that they can't come into government with the assumption that they have all the answers for government. And when they do, uh, what happens is people don't listen to them. So you can't come in with the assumption that you have all the answers, nor should the people in government uh, assume that the folks coming in from the private sector can't help them. We can help each other, but we have to start with that assumption that we both bring a contribution to the conversation because we do. That's wonderful. So before we leave this segment, I was wondering, it's a great segue uh, in some of the insights, but and how do you lead? What are some of the characteristics and principles you use in order to, to lead your team? So I think, you know, all leadership truly is situational. So it depends on where you are, what, what choices you make about leadership. But I think there are also some core tenets. And, and uh, I actually was at the FedScoop event and, and someone asked me about something. And I said that, number one, leaders give credit and they take blame. And that's important, uh, not as a pithy statement, but because your employees need to know uh, that they can count on you to have their back. Uh, because what you want your employees, a good leader wants their employees to be able to um, stretch and take risks. And uh, I don't mean stupid risks. I mean, well-calculated, thought-out risks that are going to advance the organization. And to do that, they need to know that you're going to be you're in their back. So you have to be willing to take the blame if something goes wrong and liberally spread credit around when things go well. And equally, you need to enable that by clearing roadblocks for people. Uh, so we used to say good leaders clear roadblocks and carry water. So leaders need to understand what their people need and they need to help them solve those problems that they can't solve themselves and then get the hell out of their way so they can do their work. Uh, so it's that empowering folks to have agency, to make decisions, to take risks when they make sense, and then to get out of their way and let them do their job. And furthermore, to do that, it means you have to develop people. So what I tell people is, is you know, we get a lot of, you get people in the government, been there a long time. For example, I had a job where I had a bunch of people who had been telecom technicians, literally uh, POTS telecom technicians, you know, pulling copper wires, putting, uh, you know, hardwired phones on desks. And they had been doing this job and no one had given them any development. 
they they did not know how to do anything else and their jobs were becoming obsolete because everyone was going to void no one was doing these things no one needed their services and i said this is our fault these people may not be motivated to go get new training but it's our fault that we allowed them to stay in these jobs to do this work this way and develop no new capabilities or skills to be prepared for the new job market so as leaders our job is to ensure that employees uh, have the opportunities to get trained and that some of them we push them a little harder to make sure they do now i can't guarantee you 100 percent of employees will ever take you up on that um, but the vast majority of people given the opportunity uh, will and you know it's a shame when you see someone in government who who is in that situation because government is pretty liberal and generous with training we're much more generous with the training we'll provide to people than um than we are in the in the private sector uh, where i might want to send someone to an expensive training in the government and you know if i've got a good rationale i can sign off on that in in some of the private sector companies i've worked with i'd get laughed out of the room so i tell managers you know your job is to lead and develop people to coordinate communicate across the organization which is part of that plan roblox and then the work will base the number three is to do the work because if you do those two things the employees will do the work virtually without your help but you need to just you know as a leader just help them be able to do their work and then get the heck out of their way what are the it priorities for the u.s department of energy we'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the business of government hour To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ann Duncan, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Energy. I want to switch, if you don't mind, to go into the uh, actual IT strategy. So, uh, Ann, would you tell us more about your IT strategy and maybe highlight some of your priorities? So, um, you know, DOE's IT strategy is, well, interestingly, you know, that's an interesting question in part because we're sort of in process of redeveloping our IT strategy across uh, across DOE. And, and the reason for that is that uh, I actually did not want to come into DOE and say, yep, here's our strategy, this is my plan. And in fact, I showed up and people kept saying to me, what is your strategy? Uh, what, what is it that, that, you know, that you want us to do? And I'm like, well, first of all, it's not my strategy, it's DOE's IT strategy. I don't own it. Uh, we own it together. Um, and number two, I don't know, because um, I just got here. And why would I know? And what part of that is, uh, you know, DOE has, you know, people keep saying DOE said six CIOs in seven years when I got there. And it's not entirely true because, you know, half of those were acting CIOs. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that 
that my predecessors all came in and, and had a vision and and there was a bit of organizational whiplash as people went from one vision to another vision. And so I wanted to make sure that we didn't have that kind of organizational whiplash, that we took our time to build a strategy that um, is owned by my organization as a whole and informed by the needs of the broader DOE enterprise. So with that said, I will attempt to actually answer your question that you asked. First of all, my new deputy, uh, Brian Epley, has taken leadership of that strategy process. And we do intend to have a strategy published uh, by the end of the year. We're going to be meeting with all the component CIOs uh, early or actually late in January. And our goal is to have that in place to test with them and to move forward. Uh, obviously, one pillar of our strategy is around uh, keeping the plane flying. As I said, you know, it's and as everyone tells you, right, Michael, it's table stakes. You've got to show up with IT services that work. Secondly, uh, cybersecurity is a big piece of the strategy. We have to ensure that the department uh, remains secure, uh, that, that we uh, continue to enhance the security. And there are a bunch of projects and programs, which I'm not gonna tell you about because everybody's already told you about them and you know about them, um, that are driven by uh, executive order, by CISA, by Congress saying, you know, thou shalt have zero trust, thou shalt have PIV, you know, and all these things, they're all important. There's no doubt about them, but we're we're the thing that's important in our approach to that is we're approaching that uh, from a risk-based standpoint. So we're saying, look, we can't do all this, and some of it, some of it we can't do because it's technically not feasible right now on some of our OT systems. Some of it we're not going to do because we don't have enough money. So we're going to identify our greatest risks, and those risks are um, the thing that is most have the greatest impact. Uh, and most likely to happen. Right? So, you, so it's, it, you know, it's if you can quantify it, it's kind of a math problem, but you know, we can't really quantify it. But you take those two factors and you say, these are our highest risks and we focus in on those highest risks and we work on compliance as best we can in that framework. So that's the second item. The third item um, is I talked about is innovation. Uh, it's, it's getting good and better at uh, delivering new capabilities across the enterprise. Uh, we've got a lot of needs across DOE for new solutions. And so how do we um, have the framework and infrastructure in terms of low-code platform and rapid ATO um, to allow people to build tools and capabilities? And then we can either build them for people or provide them the tools and technologies to build things themselves. Um, so that's hugely important that we be able to deliver that. And then, you know, we have our, uh, one of our big areas of focus around the, the um, rest of the mission is is spectrum we have uh with 5g and other um broadband technologies we really have to focus in on our role as spectrum managers across doe and that as an example of how we work across the enterprise uh 5g is one piece we are working across the enterprise to understand cyber defense across the enterprise we're working across the enterprise to um, look at our supply chain risk management programs catalog those across the enterprise and figure out how to make sure that we are not duplicating efforts in that space. Um, so that big role in our strategy is to be that coordinator, convener, collaborator with our partners to say, DOE's big, we know a whole lot of stuff. Let's go find out what those things are and share it across the enterprise and not take anybody's job, not take credit for anybody's work, but ensure that everybody in DOE and in some cases outside of DOE knows what we're doing and we can coordinate and be more efficient and effective because of it. 
So I would say that is probably not how the strategy is going to roll out and exactly what it's going to look like when we get there. But those are key initiatives um, that we are taking in that strategy space. I was saying, Anne, you um, you kind of wrapped in a little bit of the, the sort of the trends and and principles that are informing your strategy by saying, you know, the risk based approach I think is really a really great idea, given the the way the organization is structured and how big and diverse and diffuse um, energy is. So I, I I was wondering in your portfolio across your enterprise. Um, you know, what's going on around modernization in terms of cloud migration? Is there anything, you know, maybe you could share with us some of the benefits and challenges uh, of moving to the cloud, whether it's within the, the energy context or or within the federal context in general? Yeah, so, you know, uh, the cloud is really just somebody else's data center, right, Michael? We, we all know that. Um, sometimes we make the cloud out to be this big, amazing, incredible thing, and it's just, it's just a data center. <laughs> so... The advantage of the cloud uh, is that um, if you use the cloud wisely, it's a data center that somebody can run better than you can. The example I use is is um, or, or or if you're buying a cloud app a cloud service, it's one that you don't have to build and maintain yourself. So, for example, you know the Microsoft Office 365, right? DOE runs Office 365, um, as do many folks. We also run Google. Uh, in, in a part of our enterprise. So, you know, the thing, one of the things you'll learn about DOE, if you dig in, is if, if, if a product exists, we probably own it somewhere. Um, so we're an equal opportunity consumer. But when you look at email and collaboration in the cloud, number one, um, I don't have to worry about upgrading that service if I put in the cloud. I, I don't have to say, oh, you've pushed out patches, uh, you've deployed new um, new tools, do I want to implement them? They're all just going to show up. So that's that's number one. Number two is Microsoft or Google as the as two companies that we, we have email services with, and we probably have others too that, that I'm not aware of at the moment, that uh, they're, they're expert at securing email. They're expert at securing collaboration services um, at a level of expertise that we don't have. So when you, when you select a product that someone has deep expertise in securing uh, and, and you're more likely for them to be able to secure it successfully than for you to secure it yourself. Uh, other end of the spectrum, we have uh, applications and services and capabilities that we own in DOE where we are a customer of one. Uh, there's nobody who's going to build that product for us. And uh, there's, there's no reason to go move that to the cloud when we understand it better in some cases. Other cases, we might say, you know, we want to be able to collaborate across DOE, moving to the cloud makes a ton of sense, so we're going to do that. There are also uh, things that, you know, we're moving to the cloud, but in very secure environments. And and those cloud environments are customized uh, for us, and so that provides a great benefit to DOE to have those uh, highly secure cloud environments. Um, and then finally, I'd add that um, on, that, on that sort of where do I, what do I think of the cloud, uh, uses model. Um, you know, we have supercomputers. Um, there, we do some supercomputing in the cloud uh, as well. So we have on-premise and we have uh, in the cloud. But also, you have to look at the data for some of those applications, supercomputing and research. How much data do you have? How much data you're going to be moving? Is it possible to move the kind of data flows that you need to? Uh, keeping in mind that many of our sites, even though we have great connectivity, are in the middle of nowhere. 
<laughs> so, you know, even if you've got great connectivity, you, there are still limitations um, uh, on how much data you're going to be moving to and from the cloud for some of those applications. So as CIO, you know, what we're doing is serving as a cloud services broker across DOE for uh, when you look at uh, platform and infrastructure as a service, we've provisioned Microsoft, Amazon, and Google uh, capabilities uh, for the enterprise, uh, as well as uh, uh, capabilities in some other clouds as well. But those are sort of the three big ones that we've that we've um, uh, deployed. But we have, for example, we have Oracle products and other things that are in other for smaller cloud environments. And our role is really to say, here, here are all these fully secured solution spaces. So you can work in the Microsoft cloud, you can work in the Amazon cloud, you can work in the Google cloud, you can work in the Oracle cloud, whatever it might be. Um, and they're fully secured, uh, they're ATO, they're ready for you to go and use those uh, under our enterprise agreements in our enclaves. So that's, that's really what we're trying to do with the folks across DOE. And that can be anything from, hey, um, you know, we'll fully run your application to, we'll just give you some space to, to do your own thing in that and um, work through your ATO process when you've got your application set up in that space. And the ATO will be simpler because you're inheriting all these controls from the ATO that already exists for the platform itself. So kind of a long answer to for, for the cloud there. So, Anne, picking up on that, how are you working to scale smaller innovative successes across Energy's highly federated department? And how does the scaling IT modernization playbook factor into these efforts? And perhaps you could tell us more about the playbook, highlight some of the key aspects of it. Yeah, I want to start by first saying that the uh, playbook credit, because I don't want to forget to say this, credit for the playbook goes to a lot of people. Um, all I get is credit for the idea. Uh, we had uh, a tremendous team that built the playbook for us, and they interviewed smart people from across the federal government and the private sector. Um, I think the great thing about the playbook is that if I, if you'd asked me to write down my list of plays before we started, what we ended up with was not the same list that I would have started with, which just you know proves that none of us is as smart as all of us and, and that together we have really great ideas and great knowledge that we need to tap. So that said, um, the idea of the playbook uh, goes back to the time that uh, early in the pandemic when I was, uh, uh, working for Dell, and apparently I couldn't sort of just uh, just stay home and and relax. Um, and so uh, I signed up for a day one project, uh, and I and I um, got my CTO from EPA, Greg Godbout, to do that with me. And we put together this proposal um, for several things, and one of which was the federal government should build a modernizing a scaling IT modernization playbook because what we've seen is. Um, We've got a, a lot of a lot of places where we're doing modern development, where we're doing agile, where we're doing DevSecOps, and they're little pockets. And we, how do we make those little pockets into um, a big uh, uh, landscape of of scaled innovation? And there are very few places where that exists. Um, the Air Force has done some great work with their software factories. Other people are starting to follow that. Um, there's not a lot of it. So we said, how, so we said, how do we do that? One of the things was the playbook came back to government and I was able to, to build that, that playbook. Uh, and so the idea behind that playbook is to give people all the, um, you know, the tools and capabilities that if they run these plays, they're gonna help them move forward to being able to scale modern development practices uh, across their enterprise instead of keeping in these, in these small um, 
pockets of innovation across the organization. So that was that was the purpose, and you know it's been hugely uh, successful in terms of people looking at it. I, I mentioned earlier I was at a Fed scoop event. I think I had three different people come up to me and say they'd seen the playbook, they liked the playbook, they wanted to talk about the playbook, and that was you know, just in one evening. So it's out there. It's um, actually at uh, energy.gov forward slash CIO. It's available to anybody to take it, use it, share it. Uh, we, we are not proprietary about it. Private sector, public sector, anyone can use it. And we hope that it is helpful to people um, in their modernization journey. You know, and I was wondering, you say anybody could use it. Is there any advice you'd give someone on how to use it? Is it just pick whichever play you think is important and, and that's sort of a recipe for approaching that play? What would advice would you give for how to how to take the insights from that playbook? Well, I'd say, you know, in, 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 the intent is that you would run most or all of these plays to really be able to modernize. Um, and some people, and I think that the, the thing of it is that some people are looking at that and go, oh, we're already doing that. Uh, you know, I don't think most people who choose to pick up the playbook are picking it up from a standpoint of I've never started this journey. I think most of the people are going to pick it up are going to be the ones who are like, I'm trying to do this or I want to, or I've got, or I've got those pockets and I want to move to the next step. And so, um, you know, the plays should help them say, oh, this is my gap. Let, let me play, let me run these three or four plays because these are the places I need to move forward. But uh, we, what we haven't done, and, and maybe that's an opportunity is to say, you know, here's a sequence. If you're starting from scratch, here's a sequence of things you want to do. Um, but I would say that that in many cases, there's probably multiple plays if you're running concurrently, uh, because ultimately a lot of these things are not one-time things. They are do this, institutionalize this capability, because that's going to help you be successful going forward. And so again, people are probably going to be able to see, I've got this, but I don't have this. Um, and, but, but if you make me pick one, it's absolutely about people. So there's a whole, there's a whole section in there in the playbook about people and culture. And, and for me, um, uh, you know, that, that, um, elevate coalitions play within that, um, is about building early, building teams of early adopters, um, and champions. And that's the number one thing. Uh, you've got to have the people on board or it's not going anywhere. And so if you've asked me to pick one, that's where I'm going to gonna put my stake in the ground. How did the U.S. Department of Energy develop its advanced wireless strategy? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ann Duncan, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Energy. And the IT Modernization Playbook uh, also talks about the importance of shifting from a project management approach to a product management mindset. Why is that so important? Yeah. So the, the idea of going from project management to product management is, is there's a couple nuggets in there. Number one is the idea of a project is the project has a beginning and an end, and the end is when you deliver the product. And inherent in that is the idea that I'm not going to deliver a project until it's all done, which is not modern development, because modern development, we're constantly delivering. So um, that's the first piece is that project view is there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end, and the end is when the customer gets it. And in product management, we say there's a beginning and a middle and an end, and the end is when the product is obsolete and we get rid of it. And the middle is, or even close to the beginning, is when we are deploying capability to the uh, end users uh, and to the ultimate customer and to the owners of the product who are deeply integrated in our team and delivering that minimum viable product, uh, the proof of concepts, iterating on capabilities, building new releases. So that product mindset is, I'm gonna give you something early that fills some capability for you and that solves the hardest problem so we know that this is gonna be feasible. And then we're gonna keep iterating on that until we deliver uh, what is never a final product, we might call it a complete product and, and, and say, this has all the features we think we want right now. But like any, any product, you're going to then see you want other things, you're going to want backlog uh, uh, resolves until you get to the end where you say, I don't need this product anymore. So that mindset of this team lives with this product for the entire life cycle. You don't just say, okay, we released it, the customers have it, send it over to support and we're done. It's our product. And we own that throughout the entire life cycle. And we're deeply engaged with the team and in, in, in the team and the users in making sure that it's an experience throughout the life cycle of the product. Obviously, the product team gets smaller when you get past the big development, but they don't walk away from that product uh, the way that people walk away from a project. And so I think that's the, 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 the two key things to the mindset. Number one is in a product, your, your de delivery is not the end. And number two, when you are sort of done with the major delivery, the team doesn't leave. They still own that. Yeah, I and mean, that's a great segue into my next question because it, it, when you think about it as a product and it's a completed product rather than a final product, you know, customer experience is essential, as you just noted. So to what extent with that mindset shift, are you adopting uh, user-centered design principles when you're working with your, your team? Yeah, I think um, that is our goal across COE and different parts of the organization are going to be in different places, obviously, from 100% there to what's user-centered design. Uh, but it's critical to have user-centered design uh, for any product. Even when people, even if people are still stuck in the project mindset, they need to be doing user-centered design. And, and I have, uh, you know, my favorite story on this is back when I was at EPA, um, we had a product that we were going to deliver. And it was um, designed to be an a optional use product. So, so it was something uh, to help track hazardous waste. And uh, haulers, waste haulers, uh, waste shippers, waste receivers were not required to use this. It was voluntary. And um, but Congress was extremely interested in this getting done. Team was under tremendous pressure to get it done. 
um, spent a lot of money, hadn't written any code. We did an intervention, got involved. And um, uh, the first thing we figured out, or the first thing my team figured out, was uh, they went out and did some interviews uh, with uh, waste haulers and shippers and discovered that we were building the wrong product because we had never asked them what they needed. And it turned out that they had what we were going to build. And what they really wanted was a solution that would uh, connect their existing databases to a federal database, and they could send us the information. They did not want us to give them a solution where they could enter the system, the information in, because they had one. And we were about ready to embark on building the entirely wrong product. Uh, and so, uh, it doesn't matter what you're doing, uh, how backwards uh, your design process might be. Um, if you're not using user-centered design, you are at risk of building the entirely wrong product for your customer. And whether that is uh, a, a, a private sector activity uh, or a public sector activity, it, it, it's true in either case um, that, that you've got to know what the actual end user needs. And the other thing I will give you is, is who's the end user? Um, and, and the classic example is, you know, you can build that uh, that HR system, uh, or actually, this is a payroll system um, that that manages um, uh, time, right? You can build that time management system, and and you'll probably go out and you'll talk to those people in accounting who work with that system, and you'll get their input, and you'll 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 say, "Wow, I talked to the customer, and I've got a design that's going to work great for them." Well, yeah, they're they're a user, but isn't your customer actually? Um, or your big user, actually the 20,000 people who have to put in their time. And if the system works great for the people who process it, but the process to put your time in is ridiculous, um, I think you failed. And you see systems like that where they focus on the power users, the back office users, and they don't even look at the folks who are gonna use that an hour a week or 10 minutes a week or, or five minutes a month. And guess what? For those people who use it five minutes a month, you've got to make it really simple because they don't remember how to do it. And if it's really complicated, they're going to be really frustrated. You know, if you pay your, I just paid property taxes the other night. And it's like, I have to go figure out that system every single time because I only do it twice a year. Uh, so you got to make it easy for the folks who are figuring out that system they use twice a year. Uh, whereas it might not need to be quite as easy for the people who are in it eight hours a day, every day, because they know the system and they understand it. Um, and they will work with it. Not to say you should make it hard, but those folks are going are gonna to be much more able to adapt to, to a system that might be slightly more complicated than the folks who see it once a week or once a month or once a year. That's a wonderful perspective. And I want to be mindful of your time. So I have a couple of more questions, if you don't mind. And, and I want to jump ahead uh, to the uh, department's recent release of the advanced wireless strategy. Could you tell us more about this strategy? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities that advanced wireless, that is 5G and beyond, present to DOE? And um, how has the strategy developed? Sure, Michael. Um the uh, advanced wireless strategy was developed as a collaboration across DOE. So it started as an inventory, uh, which was actually a request from the White House, inventory our 5G capabilities across DOE. So we developed the 5G capabilities um, and, and, and delivered that and shared it with DOE and the interagency, even some of our international partners. Um, and the goal there being, uh, you know, how, make sure DOE knows what DOE knows. So. Um, not only can we not do the same project twice so that people can collaborate when one lab sees something else, um, 
than other lab is doing, but also um, so that you know, we, that our labs do work for a lot of people. Uh, they do work, there's a, a strategic partnership program where they do work for others. Sharing out what this does brings the opportunity for additional revenue into DOE uh, to labs for, for, their, uh, for their projects. And the DOE labs doing work for others, that lowers DOE's cost and sometimes the government's cost when that work is done by others outside the USG or for others outside the USG. Um, so once we did that, the, and it was a very enthusiastic group of people from across the enterprise, it became apparent that really the next step was a strategy. So, so we used that opportunity to have the same group of smart people um, help us build out a strategy for, for 5G and advanced wireless across DOE um, to help us understand how we can continue um, to contribute um, to that space to, to help further the US efforts to be global leaders in telecommunication and enhance the resilience of our national critical infrastructure because DOE doesn't do work in advanced wireless for the heck of it. Um, we work in that space because it's critically important to government and it's critically important to DOE's operations. Um, so. We did that and then we're able to identify the gaps in our strategy and say, what do we need to fill? And then my organization is identifying projects and capabilities that will fill those gaps in our 5G strategy across DOE. Um, but I'll just share with you um, the, the priorities um, of advanced wireless coming out of that strategy. Um, so number one, is uh, we want to advance the development of capabilities to further secure our access to spectrum um, that's sufficient for DOE. Uh, spectrum is a, um, a hot commodity and uh, the private sector continues to push into the government spectrum and uh, government continues to compete amongst ourselves for spectrum and we need uh, access to uh, dedicated spectrum in many cases uh, to ensure things like grid timing and and uh, support of our nuclear mission and things like that. Um, we also want to understand and mitigate threats and vulnerabilities um, through enhanced monitoring techniques and uh, robust implementation of security measures and supply chain risk management. So that's the second pillar. Um, the third is advancing the energy mission through grid modernization and help us secure our path to net zero. Um, uh, and that is net zero energy, uh, net, net zero carbon energy, to be clear what that net zero means. Um, we want to be able to support communications equity by using our assets to develop and deploy broadband capability to rural and underserved communities. Because if you look at where DOE's plants and sites are, they're perfectly situated to help be anchor points for broadband across the nation. And so we want to work with commerce and others to ensure that our plants and sites and PMAs can contribute to that solution of helping underserved communities um, in getting uh, broadband access. And then finally, um, our goal is to increase, increase collaboration and coordination with our internal and external partners and our stakeholders um, to leverage capabilities, share discoveries, and best practices. So that's those are the outcomes uh, of our strategy and what we want to accomplish going forward. Um, and we're really excited to be that, um, that convener across DOE. Uh, as as part of my role as as DOE's uh, uh, senior specter official. So, Anne, what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? Uh, so, my advice for someone who who's considering a career in public service is that uh, it is a tremendous opportunity uh, to add to serve the nation and to bring your expertise uh, 
to bear on hard problems. Government, in the government, you get to work on hard, important, meaningful things that that far ex are far greater than what you get to do in the private sector. I mean, you look at the reach of what I do at DOE. Um, I, I don't have any colleagues in the private sector who, who have a role so expansive and so important. I mean, we do everything, like I said, from securing the nuclear stockpile to going to Poland to help the Central Europeans secure the grid um, and protect the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, it's, it's a hugely important mission. Um, so number one is, is that it's a great opportunity. Uh, the second piece of advice is it's hard. Uh, I have I have never worked this hard, and I know people find this hard to believe. I never worked as hard in the private sector, and I did work hard in the private sector. I never worked as hard in the private sector as I worked for the federal government. Um, these are hard jobs. Um, don't believe people who think that that feds don't work. So if you don't want to work hard, uh, you probably don't want to come to the, the public sector. Um, but there are tremendous rewards that are uh, intrinsic rewards to doing a great job and serving the public. And uh, the government needs you. If you are smart, capable, hardworking, um, the government needs you to come help because we've got really hard problems that need smart people to solve them um, so that we can uh, have a, uh, a great future for this country with clean air, clean water, uh, uh, and, uh, and combat climate change. Another goal of the, uh, of the federal government uh, which is a, certainly a noble and important goal for our future, is that the Biden administration is committed to building a workforce that looks like America. We want uh, the federal workforce and the federal government to be a welcoming place to everyone. And so we, I really want to encourage a diverse group of people to consider coming to work for the government, knowing that, that we really need your help to make the government uh, look like America, which is our objective. So, Anne, thanks for joining us today and taking time out of your busy schedule. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Anne Duncan, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Energy. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government technology and its effectiveness. Subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. 
We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.